0: 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at JoinMIDI.com.
1: See that our flat Nick and Jim are out there? And, uh, oh God, I think it's Rob. He put uh, masks on him. <laughs> I not <don't> see that. <laughs> He's good.
2: From fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Pod Therapy. Real people, real problems, and real therapists. You can submit your questions anonymously at podtherapy.net. Or email us at podtherapyguys at gmail.com. It's been another crazy week in America. I kind of feel like somebody has one of those monkey's paws and was wishing for us to forget about coronavirus for a little bit. <laughs> and now broadcasting from the
1: churn, that guy is Dr. Jim Dobin. I'm Nick Tangerman. It's time for some pod therapy. So as you guys are hearing this, it is Wednesday or Thursday, and we record on a Sunday, and here into this weekend, Uh, There has been a huge protesting and, in some cases, rioting response. You may have heard about it. You may have heard about it. uh, And I'm sure and I hope that it's calmed down by the time you're finally hearing this.
2: This is why we tend to avoid current events. events.
1: Yeah, because Because... whatever's hot, it's going to be a news cycle, you know, past whenever we talk about it. But we still think that this is super-duper relevant because there is deep psychological aspects to this, and it shows up in therapy a lot. You know, the the experience of the African-American community or people of color, um, the experience of law enforcement officers and what, you know, when they get stuck in the middle of this, um, we get to meet the entire spectrum of people, all the way up to people that you might call a white supremacist. And, uh, you know, we're the person that still has to treat that person. You know, a surgeon doesn't get to screen out people he's going to pull a bullet out of, you know, based on their beliefs or their values, their religion or their political views. He's just a healthcare provider. And that's our job, too. And so, you know, from us, you know, when we were thinking about this, this storyline and what was happening, it was very profound because we've treated a lot of folks that have taught us a lot about their human experience. And I think that that's, that's relevant. You know, I think that there's something there for us to unpack, something there for us to reflect on and discuss from a therapeutic angle that can mm-hmm. be educational and that can teach everybody a little bit more about some of this human experience from an angle that they don't just hear about on the news.
2: Yeah, definitely. And and it's, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about it in the pre-show, but yeah. just the, the idea that, for, from my, my experience, that I can't relate to something. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, that's one of the things that we try to do is we try right. to be empathetic. And part of that is trying to put ourselves in that position and understand what the individual's going through. Mm-hmm. But to a large degree, we're never going to be able to do that. Yeah, As much as we want to try to imagine what it's like, to be in that person's position. Right. We still to some degree have to come to the conclusion that we can't. We can empathize, we can try to see it from someone's perspective, but we're not gonna feel it. Right. We're not actually gonna know it. Yeah. You know? And that's I think something that I've kind of learned just watching the the news cycle and right. how everything has been going through and, and just trying to figure out like how would I React in that situation, and right. what
1: would that be like? and I think that's what distinguishes I think a therapeutic mind as a, what I mean by that is a therapist in our discipline. We are trained very heavily to think a certain way, and that way is curiosity and so right. whenever we see stuff like this, I think we are human and we can be shocked and horrified. I think we can have very strong opinions about social justice and and the way that things go. but I think we're also very deeply inclined to ask that question of like what like the, yes. the officer who actually killed George Floyd is on suicide watch, and his wife is divorcing him, and she's already filed, and he's like in prison now or wherever they're holding him, and there's a huge bail. And even though he is public enemy number one right now, I'm very curious about his humanity. I'm very interested in, like, I wonder what he's personally going through right now. What was going through his mind? What is his human story? How did the the events of his life and the perspectives that he grew up with and that wove into his time ultimately result in this action that will forever change his life? It's and that is
2: yeah, and that is an interesting perspective as a therapist because we've I think we've both been through situations like that where we have worked with somebody who on a philosophical level or belief system we right. completely disagree with. Right. But we still have to work with that individual. And to try to be naturally curious and but not allow judgment to right. get in the way of the therapeutic relationship is really tough. And a lot yeah. of a lot of folks, a lot of therapists don't do that. A lot yeah. of therapists will say, "I just don't feel comfortable working with this person, and they'll make right. a referral someplace else
1: right.
0: yeah, I
2: try not to do that as much as I can. If I feel like I can't do my job, right, then I do, yeah, but for the most part i I work really hard to try to be naturally curious, yeah, even if I completely dis disagree with everything that person believes in. Yeah. Just but still try to look well, at that's them the as training. A, that's yeah, professionalism. Yeah, and you know. it takes
1: a long time to it does. And I'm sure if you're a surgeon and, and you know, they wheel in a guy who just, let's say, shot a a, a teenager, you know, and he was in a firefight and he's an adult and he did kill somebody and he's a horrific person or a terrorist or whatever just happened, and your job is to save that guy's life. Yeah, yeah. I hope that you're professional enough that you can do your trade, you know, yeah. with that human. But for our trade it's very difficult because we do have to interact with some really interesting thoughts. So as I prepared for this, um, what I wanted to, to bring to the table as far as the A-block segment in re, you know, reaction to this, I wanted to reflect for a moment, doing almost a case study, on um, two patients that I've seen. Uh, and then I wanted to add a third story, which is a professional in our, our valley who works alongside of us, who has a very different view of how we as therapists should be addressing this problem than I do. Oh. And I want to share that view, but I also want to offer why I don't uh, agree with it and why I don't go that well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I actually did some homework to prepare for this. Holy so. shit. Look at
3: you go! Thanks, thanks, man. Did Was you that? do it because of the oh, show, man. or did you just do it and you were like, "Oh, hey, this might be good on the show"? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah. it.
1: Yeah. No, that's all. Oh. Let yeah.
3: me let me find <laughs> let me find some
2: motivation here. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to d-
1: dig deep in my well of motivation. I was
2: I was getting all excited. I was like, look at our little Jimmy. <laughs>
1: He's all grown up trying. <laughs> look at him trying. <laughs> I don't even care how it turns out. Good job, buddy. Way to show up. You actually looked at the script before you walked in? Good job. Oh, that all makes sense now. I try. So, okay. So, here's here's uh, uh, three stories. So, the first story is a patient um, who was and is, but it is a long time ago. So, none of these patients are current. None of these experiences are current. You know, they're from deep in the career. But a patient who was one of my first um, African-American patients, Uh, this was something that I got to do at a program that you and I once worked at. Um, That was state uh, budgeted. It was something that we were funded by the state. And so we were receiving a lot of folks who were coming out of prison and, you know, they were, you know, being asked to come to our program and stay with us for a long time. Sometimes this Mm -hmm. was up on the mountain. And so they would stay with us for, I mean, at this particular program, they could stay a long time, sometimes like 60, 90 days, you know, in some cases and some rare cases really longer. And this individual was a gang member. And, you know, here I was, a new therapist. This is my first assignment. Um, I'm a suburban white guy. I, you know, have... I, I'm, I'm, I i didn 't come from money i didn 't come from like you know middle classiness i 've had aspects of my human story that that were in that category, and then I also had aspects in that story that were homelessness you know and right. and on the edge of poverty and so i 've met lots of swaths of humanity a, across the spectrum throughout that time and i've lived in lots of different states, so I feel like i 'm pretty good at knowing humanity and I, I usually feel pretty competent and in in our training there's a lot of multicultural competency that we have to do right. because we 're supposed to fill in those blind spots. Right. But I felt completely unprepared whenever I met the person. And he was a sweet person and very, very charming and all smiles, big old smile on his face. And he was this huge, like six, eight, just jacked, you know, big old dude. But he was a silly guy and like playful and like really silly and just the sweetest guy. And as I sit down to, to hear his story, I'm talking to this guy who is sweet and kind. And then he explains to me that he's a crip. And I'm like, Crip, like the gang members. And he's like, Yes, like the gang members. (laughs) And I'm like, Isn't that bad? And he's like, Well, what do you think about that? And I'm like, Well, that sounds scary. It sounds like the people on the news that are bad people. And, you know, but I didn't obviously say it this way, but this is what's going on in the context, you know. Obviously, I'm sitting here like learning from the person. And he's explaining to me why he joined a gang. And he's explaining about the options that he had in life the way that people were going to hurt him and his family, the way that they didn't have a- uh, access to jobs, the way that, you know, he failed out of high school and what was going on in that, you know, realm and ultimately the pressure he got socially to be a part of something, to make money for his family. And so it's basically a crime syndicate, but it's also this like fraternity of protection. And there is this, you know, assertion of protection. And so I learned so much about his human experience and understanding it and and through that, I came to see him as so much more of a human being rather than just a man who's a gang member. He's the sweetest guy. But I also came to understand that he had been through a lot in his life. And one of the things that he taught me that was most profound was the deep, deep distrust he had for police officers. And in in the story of that, and of course for me, it's checking all of my biases because I'm like, you're a gang member. Gang members are scary, but you're like the sweetest guy in the world. Like I would totally give you the keys to my car and have you like pick up my kids. <laughs> like you're just the right. nicest guy. And then like he's explaining the the abuse. That's that he a had weird reaction through. to have to anybody when you first meet. Them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick up my kids. Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> you didn't mind swinging by the daycare and grabbing my daughter? <laughs> <laughs> she just tell her you're with me. It's fine. Yeah, so That's yeah. a weird
2: response. No matter
3: how
1: well you know this, yeah. very generous guy. Which, just considering
2: trust you put a tent around your
1: pool to protect them from bees and UV I question, rays,
2: I question everything that you're saying and right UV now.
1: Rays. But go on. So he taught me so much about his lived experience uh, dealing with police. And of course, when you first hear the stories, you're like, "Well, of course, you're being harassed by police. You're a gang member." But he's trying to explain to me like. Gang membership is not like he joined like this huge, like official thing. You know, like no, it's just an affiliation. Right. Like people know that I am in it, and the people that need to know need to know, and like that's yeah. good, and they don't yeah. hurt me. You know, things like that, and you know, it's a very loose affiliation. But he's explaining throughout his life how, at a very young age, he he experienced encounters with the police in his neighborhood uh, as he was a young man just starting to drive and things like that that deeply, deeply turned him against this idea that there is a right and wrong. He didn't look at it as the cops are right and we're wrong. He looked at it as we're all taking care of our own. Right. And that's all this is. You can put on pretty uniforms and shiny stars, but at the end of the day, We're all just taking care of our own. And he had a very raw view of that. And it wasn't even a resentful view. He was explaining it to me, like, totally fine, Jim. You know, the cops are here to protect the white people, and we're here to protect each other. And that's just what we do. And I was just like, wow. And it was a very profound thing because it ripped away a lot of my illusions at the time that just society works the way it's supposed to work and that gang members are bad and police are good. It was like he was taking me into the complexity of his lived experience and the trauma of that. That he had gone through really, really was illuminating and realizing the things he had seen and the ways that – and then you realize that – and obviously as therapists, you start to work with, with police officers at some point too, and you realize how human they are. And you realize that they're not these you know, pinnacles of society, these robots that can do no harm. They are human beings who get scared, who see violence all the time. They're very deeply traumatized. A lot of them develop really bad coping skills like alcoholism and personal violence and things like that because they are a human being who's subjected to a lot of scary stuff. And without, you know, proper self-care and proper maintenance, a lot of humans can be really hurt by that. And then you realize how many hurting people are swirling around in our society. There's police officers interacting with my patient who are hurting people because they are hurting. And then these people that have been hurt by these police officers go off and hurt other people with a sense of carelessness because they are hurting. And round and round the cycle of pain goes. And that was one of the first big takeaways I had from that patient's experience. Wow.
3: I will tell you, uh, a good friend of mine. He's an African American man. He's um, a little bit younger than me, but not much. It's a same age bracket as I am, and he is a conspiracy theory guy. Mm-hmm. And in talking to him, and and uh, he uh, he it, he's uh, one of one of two brothers that I that I see pretty often, and um, the two brothers and I, we would sit and we would talk, and one of the brothers and myself would just make fun of this guy relentlessly for believing in these conspiracy that doesn't theories. doesn't sound like you, yeah, 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 I know. This, this, this is a different side of me that you yeah, don't yeah, see yeah. Out very often. It's a different yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this is months ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a different uh, guy back then. Yeah. And uh, so we would just sit and make fun of this guy, and he finally explained to us why he believes in these conspiracy theories. Yeah. And it was very simply the government... Uh, and when he says the government in, in large part, he means the police have fucked me over over and over again, and the government lies to me when they're fucking me over, and so I don't believe anything the government tells me, Wow, so if the government tells me that we landed on the moon, I just don't I assume that. that they are lying, and
1: yeah, uh, and you realize yeah. it's a perspective
3: yeah. formed through pain, yeah, and so his his perspective is the government lies to me, anything the government tells me is probably a lie. So, I'm going to go ahead and look into anything that they tell me and, ass- and go from a place of assumption that they are lying.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so, like, that medieval. led him to being a conspiracy theory guy. Right. Right. And yeah, that's the same that. kind of thing that wove into this patient's story because he had been raised to distrust that, that institution, law enforcement especially. He had gone to jail. Yeah. He had been pinned with things he didn't do. He had been put in situations where he had to survive, but then he's being charged. And, and there's just all this complexity. And it just resulted in this deep, deep distrust between him and the system. And I saw him as this human being. And obviously, you know, it, it was a very specific example in my career because he, more than anybody I'd ever worked with up to that point, revealed to me a lot of the African-American experience, the, the, the fear that he feels. And we had a police officer. You probably remember this gentleman. He used to come up to the mountain once a month, and he was everybody – anybody who had, a, had to have a parole officer, he was their designated parole oh, officer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And this guy would scare the hell out of these people. And at the time, we kind yeah. of liked him because he kept everybody in order, and like right. you know, he was an asset he was a useful to us. tool. He was helpful to us because yeah, you know, <laughs> we're up in the middle of the mountains asking people to obey our little therapy rules, and he'd come up yeah. and go, "If you don't, I'll take you down in cuffs." And they're like, "Yes, sir," <laughs> you know, we're going to go to group and talk about our feelings now because <laughs> yes. you know, we don't want to be punished. And so, like, it was helpful. But I would see the countenance of my patient change oh, as yeah. soon as this guy's car rolled up the mountain, and it was visceral. And yeah. I'd see it in his eyes, and he went from this big smiley, huggy, jokey, best friend ever guy, just a teddy bear, to, like, one of the scariest men I've ever seen in my life. And he's just scowling. And whenever the police officer would tell everybody to round and up and come you, the cafeteria, that, that's
2: when you asked for the keys to your house back. That's when I was like, hey,
1: man, can I get those keys? <laughs> I just realized I left the stove on. I gotta run. Where'd you leave my kids? <laughs> <laughs> that was when I had that second thought. So, like, we go inside, and, like, I can just see, like, how... Like as she is and protective he is. And it's such an interesting thing because when I see a police officer, as you were reflecting in the, the pre-show as a white man, when I see a police officer, I don't feel fear. I feel like I'm aware. I'm aware that the, that human has a gun on them. And that I don't, and that other humans are not walking around with the ability at any time to kill somebody, and I realize this human can, but I feel safe because I'm like this human's highly trained to not kill me. And they're here to protect people. And if I'm not doing anything wrong, they have no interest in me whatsoever. I'm just background noise to them. They're just walking right past
0: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over forty. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up.
1: Whenever he was in the presence of that police officer, he felt fear. Yeah. And that fear conditioned him to behave strong, to be off-putting and intimidating, because that is the only way that he could protect himself. Well,
2: and I think it's... Yeah, I mean, because it's survival survival. instinct. You know, I think my survival instinct, because I didn't grow up that way, Mm -hmm. was conditioned differently. Right. You know, whereas... Um, if i'm in a situation where i feel like you know the other person has some sort of power which could be authority sure. could be a weapon could be whatever then i automatically i do anything i can to not make myself appear like a threat yeah so i slow down my movements i kind of lower my voice i calm down i i try to not make any sudden movements or anything like that right. you know because i don't want yeah because yeah. i don't want to trigger fear, because once you trigger that fear, then now it's all the amygdala that's driving the brain. It's right. not anything else. And then that's when you get those crazy reactions. But I think like in that situation, like, no, you're, you're trained, like, okay, this is a threat. Right. I know right away, this
1: is a threat. Well, I this just, is all you about survival. visually so. see him. Yeah. And, and so later on, as I built my relationship with this guy, I asked him about it. Like, hey man, I really noticed a different side of you in the way that you interacted with the police and the, you know, all that stuff. And one day he finally, we had a breakthrough, and it was one of the most profound moments of my early career where I said, you know, I just don't get it, man. You're such a jovial and laughy and huggy and playful and teasing kind of guy. And then it's amazing how it switches over. And he looks at me and he said, you know, Jim, I'm actually not that guy. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm not that jovial, playful, big white smile guy. I said, yeah, you are. That's how I've always seen you. He said, I do that to you because you are a white man in power over me and he said, that is one of my te- my tricks, because if I, I, I can read you really well and I'm a lot bigger than you. And if I scare you, you're going to be able to cause problems in my life. So I put you at ease by being over the top playful with you because you seem like a playful guy. <laughs> and I just realized like, my God, his whole life yeah. is adapting yeah because he cannot trust any person who, and you know, he's earned that, that distrust. It's not, he's a distrusting guy. He's a very well put together guy. It was just his life story and he realized even me the guy who was supposed to be his therapist I fell for the act and, and it was one of the best he'd ever done because he had to because he right. can't trust anybody not to betray him or to screw him or to know anything it was profound man it was a really wow. profound so that for me that gave me a lot of um, uh, awareness and insight into this this a little little teeny tiny dot in the entire human story of the African-American community, which I I feel uncomfortable saying that phrase because I feel like that's it's not a ubiquitous community. Yeah. There's lots of humans, lots sure. of places, experience lots of things. But as I watch these riots that have happened and the protests that have happened, I always see his face in my mind. And I think of him so fondly and as such a beautiful human being who had gone through so much pain. And I know that he would be out there you know, pushing against this because he just feels like he has no other choice. Anytime he has played the game of the system, it has betrayed him, it has hurt him, it has lied to him. It's like Jacob's friend, the conspiracy theorist. He's just been hurt too many times. And he feels like the only thing he has left, and at, at times in his life, the only thing he had left was violence. And that was the one tool that was still available sometimes to save his own life. It's profound. Yeah. So that was a really profound story for me. That was, that was the first one. That, that patient that really revealed to me that side of the street. So now I want to tell you about the second patient. Okay. Second patient, uh, middle-aged white guy in his 40s. Um, military, and very much a supremacist. And this was a tricky one, because as a therapist, whenever you're You're curious about somebody and you're asking them questions, you might hear something about them that is off putting or something that you don't personally agree with. Mm -hmm. But we're highly trained to not make that an issue because that will shut the person down. If you say, Yeah, I voted for Trump, and I'm like, Oh, really? Trump's a fucking idiot. Well, there goes our therapeutic report. (laughs) You know, like I wouldn't vote for Trump. Like, so if somebody tells me their views about anything, if you polled all my patients and said, Does Jim agree with you about little things? they would be like, Yeah, Jim and I are a lot alike. And that's not actually true. Jim is yeah. a highly trained therapist. That's not a being a liar. It's just never making my problems your problems. Like if right. I don't like Trump, that's not my time to tell you that. Right. If you tell me you love him, I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's got a lot to like about him. What do you like about him? And they'll be like, oh, I just love that he's really good at business. I'm like, he is really good at business. And like that's all. Like we're just, uh, you know, I'm seeing your perspective, looking at things that you hand to me and go, wow, it's really interesting. Well, that's really difficult to do when you're talking to a white supremacist. As somebody who collects guns. uh, for the apocalypse kind of thing and very much has the view that, and, and this person was, you know, I don't want to put networks and stuff on blast, but the person was very woven into Fox News that very much fed into their 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 thinking. They had gone really deep down the rabbit hole of very specific news sites and very specific aspects of things. Now, this person was nonviolent. If you would have asked this person, hey, man, do you have a plot? Like, are you going to hurt me? He'd be like, whoa, whoa, no, no. I'm part of the government. Like, I'm here to protect you. Like, and that's how you would see this person. As as a very kind, like here to protect you, church goer, everybody's cool. You know, no, but when you hear his deeper thoughts, it's it's very deeply influenced to feel a sense of hatred and anger toward them, which for him was Obama. And and all the Jesse Jacksons and all the people of the world that, you know, try to take away the power. And he didn't necessarily see it as us and them. He didn't see it that clearly. But if you'd let him just talk, he'd eventually get to us and them. Oh. You know. And if you asked him about it, he'd say, no, 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 I don't see it as that. There's good people. You know. It doesn't matter your race. But if you just let him free fall for a while, he'll eventually land on, listen, there's a black agenda. And they want to take away power. They want to demilitarize. They want to make us weak. Look at Obama. And just listen to it. And it would just be talking points from the darkest parts of you know a very right-wing web but it also wove into it um weapons and like preparedness and like i think that if there was a riot if there was you know right now it's the police generally versus the the protesters but he would be one of those guys dressed in gear uh you know walking into the capital uh, of of a place with an AK-47 uh, strapped to his chest And demanding something, you know, from a governor and not expecting anybody to stand up to him and and being completely fine with that. And if there were a clash, he'd be the guy on the other side of the line, the guy who's with the tiki torches in Charlottesville. Like, that's who he was. Well, I got to work with this guy long enough that I watched him go through a transformative process where he eventually looked nothing like that original guy. And it was interesting because that was not part of my treatment plan. Right. We were just working on addiction. You know, that was it. And... This individual got to the end of, of my time with them and that had fundamentally changed. And I'd asked him about it because I, I like to read when I'm wrapping up a case with somebody, especially if I work them for years. I like to read to them some of my original notes about them to like remind them what I first saw. Hmm. And, you know, I did that. And I said, you know, you used to have a really strong perspective, like politically and stuff. And I said, you used to be a really angry guy. And he goes, dude, I was and I was miserable. And he, and he would talk to me about that and be like, I used to be so angry. And I said, well, what what changed? He said, I stopped watching all that stuff on the news. Huh? And he said, I realized one day I couldn't do it anymore because I was so sad and so angry and so miserable. So I stopped and I just started like going to meetings, going to church, talking to nice people, making friends. And he said, I just suddenly stopped seeing people as like, you know, Democrats and Republicans or liberals and, you know, good conservatives or whatever he wanted to see or, you know, Trump, to use a Trump quote, thugs, you know, and like the, the you know, civilly obedient, you know, whatever. He stopped seeing it that way just and especially going to the rooms and stuff. I think he just started encountering humans who are yeah. just like him. He's no different then, but they're very different, but he's right. no different. And so I got to he see what I've seen nice them as different before. earlier. Yeah. If
3: you described the person to him, he would have been like, oh, that person's very different than me. Yes. And if he goes and is spends
1: some time with them, no, yes. oh, this is just me through a different lens. Yes. He started to see himself in others. And right. so it was interesting to watch that transformation process where I would probably say he might describe himself. I don't think he would say the phrase white supremacist. But I think if you laid out the paradigms that make a person a white supremacist in a paragraph. He checks the him, boxes. Yeah. How much of this sounds right to you? I think yeah. you like, yeah, yeah, This is yeah, that's pretty close. You know, yeah. like, and then it's like, well, this is a white supremacist. Like, what? No, no, that's not what it is. It's. A conservative platform, you know, like, or whatever. So it's interesting to kind of caricature both those people where I got to see one who taught me a lot about his personal lived experience as a black man. And I got to see this other person who taught me a lot about where his hate was coming from, where his anger was coming from. And it was fascinating to me because it's, it's like Jacob said. When you listen to the conspiracy, when you listen to the perspective and you really try to understand your patient, because I don't try to correct. I don't try to tell you you're mm-hmm. wrong. I just want to understand it made so much – I want to. I don't want to say it made sense because it wasn't the kind of sense that you'd march out into objective reality and have a community discussion about. Right. It wouldn't hold up. Right. But inside of the echo chamber that he lived in, it 100% made sense. Yeah. Every word he said made sense.
2: Now, I think now is a good time to jump in because I think a lot of folks who don't understand therapy or counseling right. would look into this and say, well, Jim, why would you – if, if somebody is rattling off stuff like that, why don't you jump in and why don't you try to correct that and try to guide them someplace else? And I think the answer to that is because everything at first is built off of rapport. And like, I think this is a really good example. I think this happens often when once you've established rapport with somebody and you get them to that point where they start self exploration, which is a big part of therapy, they start doing that themselves right. just as in the case with this guy. You know, he started questioning some of his own personal beliefs. He started questioning how he's getting that information. He's becoming self-aware of his emotions and things that trigger his emotions and starting to make decisions on avoiding those things. And he's able to kind of work it out himself, which wouldn't happen without first
1: establishing a rapport. Right. And, and that was the thing that, you know, this leads to actually the third story. So the third story is a professional who have known the community and this is a therapist. It's also a, a therapist who's a person of color and is very, very passionate about addressing that and like social justice issues and has told me lots of stories about you know what it was like to you know kind of come up and what it was like to go through you know her story and so it's interesting because as I've heard her story, she's talked about systemic racism and and obstacles and things that have shown up in her career that have gotten in the way. And and so she's had a very interesting reaction to that where she in she doesn't exclusively treat people of color, but she's very intentional to make that her caseload. And that's okay, that's great. You know, everybody has, you know, a niche that they try to serve that totally makes sense. But for her, it even goes a little bit further than that. It becomes a cause. And she and I have had some pretty in-depth conversations where she's explained when you experience a patient like that, or anything in society, you have a social responsibility to confront these broken, toxic views and fix that. You cannot allow that to be. You have to be a challenger of that. You have to fix it. And that was such a pervasive view of hers that she believes that on every level, not just racism, um, but toxic masculinity. If a man is talking to you and he tells you about things in his relationship, that if you exposed those exact quotes on Twitter, he would be, you know, looked at as a monster, then you need to challenge those quotes. You need to challenge his frame of reference, and you need to fix that toxic masculinity. If you would think of him as selfish, you need to challenge that. If you think of him as entitled, you need to challenge that. If he has white privilege, you need to challenge that. And that was a very exclusive thing to her. She believed very strongly every single patient you have, and she would challenge me on this because she'd be like, Jim, you are a white man. You can do things that I cannot do. I'm like, okay, I accept that that's true. And she said, you have a responsibility that whenever you work with white people, which you may do a lot of sometimes, You have a responsibility to show them their white privilege and to challenge them to see it and to change it and to engage with it. And if you are not doing that, you are not doing your job. And so that was her perspective. And there is a debate in our field about whether that is a view that you should adopt, whether therapists are fundamentally supposed to be social changers. And especially if you come from a social work background. Then the answer is yes. The answer is a big yes. (laughs) So I don't feel that way. And and so my view, and you know, I, I'm totally open to her views on this and, and she teaches me her thoughts and I try not to offer her my thoughts because I don't think that that's what our conversation is. I think I'm there to learn and I think my thoughts might mis- be misinterpreted and cause pain and I don't want anything I say to cause pain. So I just re- I receive from her. But privately, when I think about whether or not I'm going to do the things that she's asked me to do, I think no. and And the reason I think no is because I don't see that as my job. I am a individual healthcare provider. I am not the mayor of a city. I am not the, you know, epidemiologist and, you know, uh, guy who decides cultural norms inside of our system. I am one provider. You walk into my office and you tell me what's wrong with you. And if I notice that you seem a little entitled along the way, or if I notice that you have toxic views, like this gentleman who literally was military assault rightfully and talking about how, you know, somebody just sh- sh- probably should have popped a cap in Obama, you know, like... Obviously, I'm not – I don't know. I don't see that as now I need to jump in and say, you know what? You're being a racist. Or obviously, you wouldn't be that confrontational about right. it. But I, yeah, I yeah. just don't feel like that's part of my treatment plan. Like the third item on my treatment plan is not address systemic injustice and white privilege perspectives. That's not what we're here to do. That's further down the list or higher? List? <laughs> it's not number three. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing to, to kind of contemplate is, like, what is our job in this? Should we be change agents, you know, on this, like, society-wide level? Should we be catching these perspectives and showing them to people and saying, look, you're wrong? I don't feel like I should do that, A, because I think it's also very entitled of me to try to do that. We're taught not to do, do no harm, you know, like, here to fix things, not here to challenge. That would be imposing my philosophies on the patient. I'm a progressive dude. So, if I start imposing my progressive philosophy on the patient, it's invalidating their worldview, which is way deeper than what we're here to do yeah I'm here to help you with your anxiety right I'm here to help you with your depression I'm here to so say you don't kill yourself like that needs to be my role yeah I would ag- I, I mean I would agree in the sense
2: that yeah, your job isn't to pass off of pass off your belief system your ideology because then it that that has a i guess an understanding a fundamental baseline that you're fundamental or that you're Belief system is correct. Right. Right. Whereas it assumes why, that I'm yeah, right. Why, yeah, why would you assume you're right? I think uh, my philosophy on that is therapy is all about self-exploration. Right. I think that happens naturally if you continue to build rapport and you continue to challenge thought processes on everything, not just on toxic masculinity or political ideology or race or any of that, I think as the person becomes uh, more insightful, they start questioning that. And I don't think you are in the driver's seat. I think you're a passenger. I think you're a navigator. And I think they choose to look at those things. And I think it will happen naturally, but I don't think you have to force it.
1: Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. So as we were talking, you said something earlier about the role of the therapist I'm very Rogerian in this answer, and so for those of you who are students out there and and studying this trade, um, Carl Rogers is one of the greatest psychotherapists who ever lived. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, He's actually been uh, brought into mitigating conflicts on a global scale, like where there's been war. He's been one of the people negotiating to bring peace because he is that damn good. Also
2: invented the Ford
1: Mustang. I did not know that.
4: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
0: in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com.
0: Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Jesus. You know, he is, he is a very accomplished man. Yes. Known so, as the hedgehog in the porno industry. <laughs> <laughs> so Carl Rogers also wrote a few books. And one of his books talks about the way to be a therapist. And it's a manual for that. And here's a quote. It's one of the quotes that I've really always appreciated that he wrote about, and I just wanted to read it out loud because I think for me it justifies why I take the perspective I do about it's not my job to change somebody's white nationalism or mm-hmm. challenge anything. You know, with, you could have said with my first patient, the African-American gentleman who had perceptions that that crime in some ways is justified because the system is broken. Well, I could have said, hey, philosophically, I disagree with that. I believe in law and order in society. And even though you've been through a lot of trauma and sad things in your life, you need to, you know, not do crime anymore and realize. Like, obviously, I'm going to help him not to be self-destructive. Right. Like, that's healthy. But, like, I'm not going to say you're wrong about the system. Yeah, because what you do
2: at that point is you put him on that side and you on the other, and then you're no longer
1: connected. And look at how hard it already was for us to bridge that gap. He was lying to me the whole time with his personality. So the most important thing I can do is connect. So here's what Rogers said. He said, The therapist, at his best, does not suggest, advise, or persuade. He does not assume responsibility for the client's decisions. Instead, he encourages the individual, now more clearly aware of his true feelings and with more acceptance of his total self, to take the responsibility for making new choices. Often hesitantly, often fearfully, the client does so and is cheered and encouraged by the fact that he finds he can successfully take responsibility for himself and can direct his energies toward new, self-chosen goals. So that comes back to internal locus of control. Mm -hmm. That comes back to non-directive posturing and therapy. I am directive if there's a problem. I am directive. You come into me and say, I have anxiety. I'm like, you're going to work the gym program. It's going to be my program. I'm going to show you how to do it. You're going to do what I tell you to do, and I'm going to fix you. That's directive, right? But with a lot of these cases, I'm non-directive, especially if you're revealing things along the way about your, your worldview. And if I think that's not correct or wrong, I don't feel it's my role to step in and do that. I feel that I'm here not to challenge and persuade you that I'm right and you're wrong, to help you be non-self-destructive, to give you the space to encounter your truth. And usually if you give people that space to talk it out and you ask strategic questions, they bump into why those are dysfunctional views anyway. In both cases, the the clients came from toxic perspectives. And in both cases, through engaging with a therapist, their views were, were developed and grown and broadened, and they ultimately changed a little bit. And I think that that's a win. And they all, both of both cases, they were dealing with addiction, and in both cases, they were successful. And ultimately, I think that makes them more wholesome, better human beings, even if they're still going to go through the story of life. So, a little bit of three stories there to sort of match against what's going on in current context, and hopefully contribute something.
2: Yeah, yeah. Answering the questions that you guys didn't ask.
1: (laughs) And also, big plug for the Ford Mustang. Still not, not a, and also Just for Men decided not to sponsor the show, even though I tagged them out on social media. I saw that. Jerks. Yeah, and they responded, but uh, the answer was uh, no. No. (laughs) That's a hard no. That's a hard no, Jim. (laughs) I'm used to it. All right. Well, we are going to take our first break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about a question about medications. You're listening to Pod Therapy. This week's Thera Producer sponsor is Nathan's Hot Dog Scoop. Today's
2: first trivia question in honor of Thera Producer Nathan's Hot Dog Scoop is currently ranked number one in the world golf rankings. This golfer from Northern Ireland is a four time major champion. And along with Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus is one of three players to have won four majors by the age of 25. You golfed today, didn't you? I did. I golfed this morning before the show. So, <laughs> would, If so you'd 25. like to join Nathan's Hot Dog Scoop and make the show possible, you can go to patreon.com slash therapy and sign up. Thanks uh, Again, that's patreon.com slash therapy. He also has the most Irish sounding
1: name. He yeah, does. does he? Oh, yeah, he does. Yes. Okay, the only it's golfer...
2: Short of Seamus.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as Irish as you can get yeah. right before you hit Seamus. that's uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the edge of the
2: Irish.
3: I'm actually it's, really interested in this answer. It's
1: though.
2: Irish McIrishy. Yeah. <laughs> his, name, his name is Dublin McIreland.
1: <laughs> Sean Potato. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty Irish. Yeah. Oh, my God. So... The only, uh, the only golfer who I really, really like is Arnold Palmer. It's not him. And yes. it's specifically <laughs> because I like iced tea and lemonade. Yeah, okay. I mean, I do I like iced tea and lemonade. I assume yeah. he's also a golfer, but I mostly like his brand.
2: I mean, he's he most well-known for the iced tea lemonade. I like I it. Mean, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's. I mean, he's played some good golf. <laughs>
1: How many golfers but, have really changed uh, my life? what? Right. Arnold. Arnold. He, he cools me down on a hot summer day. (laughs) None of the rest of them even come close. Good morning guys. I've written in a few times. I have a 15 year old daughter who wants to be a boy. I will refer to him. He's pretty set on that, but I won't let him do anything to his body until he is 18 for the sake of, I don't want to mess with his body while he's still growing and maturing. And also because he's going to figure out how to pay for all that. When I've written in before, I Mm -hmm. referred to this as my daughter. He was in a mental health facility in October for six days. When he came home, it was probably the best of us because it opened up amazing doors for a great therapist who specializes in transgender work and is a psychiatrist. He's been on a form of Prozac and Buspirome. About two weeks ago, the doctor increased his dosage for both medications. Since then, he has been having insane nightmares, delusions, and hearing voices. After finally hearing back from the doctor yesterday, he said to stop all meds immediately and take him to the mental health facility to be evaluated. They stated their intention was not for him to stay, but to be evaluated. At the facility, he had to be checked in and then seen by the doctor, and they can keep him or send him somewhere else or release him. I guess my biggest question is, this seems to have come when the medication changed. Do you know if the meds can somehow mess with a person and make them have delusions? I guess I just don't understand it. Thanks, guys. Really enjoy the podcast and all the advice. Anonymous. Okay. Good, Good question. Uh, we we got into that a little bit last week with John. Yeah. yeah
3: with uh, with just oh, medications... Yeah. Making, making him, you suddenly feel things. He wanted to jump yeah. out of a building. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And then he called his or doctor. Didn't, didn't
3: want to jump out of a building. But suddenly woke idea. up and, and thought like, oh, I should jump out of the building. Right. I should, I
1: should jump off of this building. This makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Or picking spiders out of his shoes. And those were related to medicines both times. I mean, in right. one case, he was abusing them. But, you know, in right. the other time, it was his, you know, very powerful experiences and the medicines he was on. And, yeah. So in this case, sounds like that's what they're dealing with too. Yeah,
2: I mean, I know one of the side effects of uh, buspirone is uh, nightmares. Yeah, so it's it's not one of the more common side effects, but it is a uh, it is a side effect that has been noted in in some of the research. Um, as far as the, uh, uh, what was she saying? The uh, Prozac, Prozac. No, buspirone. not the pro- the delusions. I guess, I mean, def- depending on how you define delusions. I mean, you're going to have some thoughts, like Jacob said, you know, with, uh, with John's example, right. you know, of just for whatever reason, just feel like I need to do this. Um, the
1: delusions, I guess I'm not very familiar with With the Prozac. No, I I mean, I don't think – so, okay, yeah, the, the obvious variable that has changed here is medicine, right? And so if yeah. this patient in no way had any of these symptoms ever, and then you introduce Prozac and Buspirone – and then now they're but that's the thing these reactions seem really big for right. literal SSRI Prozac and buspirone. Right. I mean Prozac is an SSRI. That that is the Tylenol of mental health. It is your basic antidepressant anti-anxiety med. I don't know that I've ever heard of that big of a reaction to it. I've I've seen discomfort, I've seen a little bit of anxiety, I've seen you know, ironically, because it's their treating anxiety. Mm-hmm. I've seen some people, you know, have little side effects, but, you know, nausea, but never something on this level. And even with Busperone, I really just don't anticipate these kinds of symptoms. But obviously, that's the variable. Obviously, that's the big thing that changed. And so you look at that and go, well, clearly, that must be the smoking gun. Um, and so, I mean, I, the real question that the writer's asking about is, whenever you have a patient who has, okay, insane nightmares, that's not it's a symptom, but it's not something we diagnose with. Mm-hmm. We do not look at – night, except in cases of PTSD, right. we do not look at nightmares as valuable data to us, except that the human is suffering and their mind is wandering. And there's lots of meds like Trazodone or Seroquel that might help with that. And, you know, again, we do not make medical advice recommendations on this show. We're just an educational show, but I'm just re- opining on what I've seen in the past, right? But the parts that are actual symptoms, uh, delusions, and to remind the, the majority of listeners, when you have um, – what we call psychotic features. That word psychotic scares a lot of people because they think it's like evil clown stuff. But no, it's just a medical term. And psychosis or psychotic features just means you're hearing things that aren't there or you're seeing things that aren't there. And usually those are hallucinations. A delusion is a little bit different. A delusion is not I'm hearing something that's not there or seeing something that's not there. A delusion is a perspective. Mm -hmm. They're out to get It's paranoia sometimes, or it's um, this celebrity loves me. You know, they they Oprah's winking at me when specifically me. You know, it's it's I can't trust you. You're all against me. You're you're not here for me. It kind of has to. I mean, it's it's like beliefs. It's a belief. Yeah, it's it's a deeper belief. It goes back to John's example from the last show where John was saying I had a delusional idea that jumping out of a window made sense. Like that was a good choice. Is it? So in in the mind of
3: the person there are there are things that they feel that they can prove. So they they might see something and so they feel that they can prove that that thing exists. They it might not be there. It might be it might be a hallucination, but they can they can really point at it and say that that exists. So what could a delusion possibly be something
1: that they feel is true but something that they can't necessarily Approved? It is similar to that. Yeah. Okay. Like a hallucination, They most patients will tell you, I'm aware this isn't real. I'm okay. aware that the voices aren't real. I'm aware. But it also kind of doesn't matter because your experience is real. Right. You right. You know, if I see a constant scary thing jumping out at me, being able to tell you I know that that's not real does not protect me from the jump take. Still like, scares me every yeah, time. It still scares me and it causes yeah. me to have pain. Have
2: you ever done the experience where... Uh, you put earphones in and then you actually listen to the voices. I did that at a training once when I was a a graduate student. (sighs) And we actually had to, like, for the assignment, what we had to do is we had to go out into the union, the student union, and, like, ask people directions, like, where's the bathroom? And we had certain things. Yeah, and it was hard. And even, like, knowing that it's not real, obviously it's just an audio that I'm listening
1: to. Right. Um, But it's hard just to interact with people. I couldn't do it. And, yeah. and so for me, I quickly had to take them off because I was feeling like I was going to lose my grip. Yeah. Because, like, these voices, it, the the ones that we were trained with, were uh, prosecutory. They were Oh, yeah. Ours were too. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, like, scary. You're horrible. Yeah. You know, we're coming for is shit you know yeah and like really really scary things like god i can't do this like i no. have to stop because was like i'm done like i tap out you guys win i'm gonna help I'm people yeah you guys can give them medicine but you know this is a, a situation where the patient's having delusions we don't know what those are but it's it's false perceptions of reality not hallucinating something perceiving reality in yourself incorrectly and usually in a self-harmful or mm-hmm. destructive way we're all seeing nightmares that's again not a symptom but then the third thing hearing voices so when we're hearing voices, we consider that a psychotic feature. Okay, something's not happening. You're perceiving that it is. Your senses are not working accurately. Is that a side effect of Prozac or prone? Boy, I think you'd have to stretch. I think you'd have to really stretch. There'd have to be a chemical problem going on with the person and a mismatch with the medicine. I defer to the psychiatrist's treatment, yeah. but you know, I think that psychiatrist is going to screen for everything. Yeah, you know, and and pro- might be noticing at 15 years old. Some kind of schizophrenia yeah. that that might be what's happening is that this child is is 15. They are now developing into the age range where we might be catching some of these features, and that might be what you're actually seeing. It might not be a medicine. Could thing. be.
2: Could, Could be. be. I mean, honestly, I think the best your your best route is to continue working with your you psychiatrist. You absolutely did
1: the right thing. And, yeah. Yeah. And,
2: and also just being very open and report everything that happens. Yes, right. The, no the more exactly. information your psychiatrist has, the better. The other thing, too, that I want to comment on is, you know, going back into the hospital. Because a lot of times people will look at that as some kind of a failure. Right. Of something went went wrong and that we got to start all over again. Right. People have that perspective of going to an inpatient psychiatric setting. And that's not really the case. No. The way that they did it, I think, was really good. It's almost kind of like, okay, bring the car back into the shop. Yeah you know, it's, it's safe in here. Let us take a look at it and then we'll get it, you know, we'll get it fixed
1: and get you on your way again. Yes. That's a really good use of an inpatient psychiatric. 100%. And and I think that writer is the thing that we definitely want to signal back to you. You 100% handled that correctly. Yeah. Like faced with these, you know, new features faced with new symptoms. You reported it. You partnered with a strong therapist and a strong psychiatrist. They're monitoring the meds. They're working well with your teenager. First off, you are one of the lucky ones. To even have a good team like that. A lot of times it's very hard to find a good duo. Like you might find a good therapist, but then you struggle to find a good psychiatrist. You might find a decent psychiatrist, but then it's hard to find a really good therapist. And that therapist specifically specializes in transgender, you know, uh, experiences. Wow. So like this is a great recipe. Lean in. Mm -hmm. Don't look at this as things going wrong. Look at this as more data. As Nick often says, don't look at it as something's, you know, it's just data. It's Learn. just information. Just information. Learn from it. Give that information to the team. Let them try to to work out the medicine. Obviously, we're not going to make any medicine recommendations, not even our scope. We don't even do that. Until Nevada actually wrote that emergency order, expanding all of our scopes indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. So I've also opened up an OBGYN clinic, too. You guys should right. swing by. <laughs>
2: Excellent. Yeah,
1: I'll get you a mammogram, get you out of there real quick. Cool. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Ryder, good I'm trying to think of a place I'd like to go to less than. <laughs> and what, what, obgyn and it. what'd you come
2: up with
3: obgyn
1: Nothing? optometry so, hair uh, care and tire and lube. Wow. the one-stop shop i it's got it all quite a list yeah yeah yeah. yeah. i just I, you know I'm trying to diversify man these are uncertain times yeah since our scope <laughs> has been lifted i'm not a now an airline pilot that's pretty cool so. <laughs> how's that going great yeah the phone not ringing a lot but wait, yeah. waiting on the bench yeah <laughs> so great job writer i think you're handling it exactly right and um, you know, no comment on the transgender aspect of things. I don't think you asked any questions about it, so I'll stay yeah. stand well, it sounds down. Sounds like that everything's
2: going fine. With not it. our business. So, yep, you good. didn't ask about it. Yeah.
1: All right. So we are going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss hopelessness. You're listening to Pod Therapy. This week's th- second
2: TheraProducer producer sponsor is Doctor Ben Don. Today's second trivia question, in honor of TheraProducer producer Ben, is a golf ball. <laughs> oh, close. This female American golfer became the youngest player to qualify for a USGA Amateur Championship at the age of 10 and turned pro shortly before her 16th birthday. She won her first major at the 2014 US Women's Open. Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer. Two for two. Nailed it. Right. If you'd like to join Ben Dunn and make the show possible, you can go to patreon.com therapy. And thanks for signing up. It's a women's golf. That's cool. No, I, no, I wanted to do one male golf. Yeah, women play golf, Jim. Yeah. Hey, no, hey. They're to do that Everybody now. calm down. Everybody hey, Jim, they
1: can also vote. Have they made any good drinks? <laughs> That's what I care about. Call me whenever they pioneer yeah, whatever chauvinist blending together lemonade and iced tea chauvinist. Okay, let's just talk about the women's suffrage thing again. I don't feel like we all kind of came to the same page. You guys see what I'm seeing on this though, right? Like the suffrage thing. Can you believe it? You see it, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're all on the same page. We're we're all friends here. I don't re- I don't even remember what that joke was. <laughs> the joke was that <laughs> no, no, mis- I don't care.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, okay, you misunderstood. You misunderstood what I was saying. All right. Hi, Jim. Hi, Nick. Uh, I have no light or friendly introduction today, so here goes the word vomit. From the waist down, I feel numb. This is one of those fear responses we can't really explain, but everyone knows and feels their version of it. Up till now, today had been a more successful day in terms of managing my sadness, but now I have a horrible eye twitch and a desperate need to write. The borders might be closed for Brazilians for an indefinite amount of time. It's happening worldwide to some extent, but I was informed a few minutes ago about the restriction to enter the U.S. for who knows how long, specifically blocking people from Brazil. We not only have to be here, but we, but we also cannot escape if we have the means to. Not that this is our biggest problem by far. This is just a little bit more of lighter fluid thrown into this dumpster fire of a situation right when we think the flames are starting to diminish. Nonetheless, it hits me hard every time I'm reminded of how fucking helpless I am. So why did I leave? This question haunts me. Whenever I planned to go visit Indiana, I was fully aware that I would have to come back. But for some reason, part of me decided I was staying as soon as my feet stepped out of the plane in Chicago. There was almost an alien voice inside of my head trying to convince me to hear it, to trust it, to understand that this was the time to do the unthinkable and stay. I had no idea what was about to happen. I got bombarded with questions and information for two weeks, everyone trying to put solely on me the ultimate decision to either stay or fly back to Brazil. And I was just trying to have someone else decide for me or to let me and make me stay. I never wanted to leave. I was desperately looking for a way to stay. I failed. Those days before my flight back were worse than I expected. The moment we parked at O'Hare and I knew I had to go thousands and thousands of miles away, I felt physical pain. I couldn't move. It feels like March was a year ago, and still the days go by so fast now. I was so happy, so happy that I can't understand why I did not follow my heart and stay. I know I would have been really. It would have been really hard. There were a lot of factors in the equation, and I had no control over most of them. So now, uh, so how come I blame myself each day when I wake up here? But where I'm uh, and feel that I'm wasting my life waiting, this regret never leaves me—not for a second. I keep thinking I should have done more. I should have fought harder. I should have prepared myself better. And I hate that I was incapable to do everything. I don't even know how I could have done to prevent this. Even now, while I write this, I can't understand why. Sure, there is a lot of real-life problems involved in this, including my ability to buy my medication, for example, so I can reason myself out of this loop of despair when I need to, but I still think I was fucking weak, and I would have found a way. Now it's too late. I'm not there anymore. I'm trapped here, and I have to deal with that, too. Wherever we look... All we see is pain. My family tries to comfort me, saying that we are all okay and safe, but that is also a big load of bullshit. I had to tell them that the reality of our country is that people will die. Whoever has to die will die, because we have no one to count on. There is no effort to prevent casualties. This is a now brutal self-preservation game. Our family is lucky because we get to stay home as much as possible, since most of us are either working from home or retired." The most we can do is try to check on them and our friends and tell them just to stay safe. Other than that, no hope at all. We are just watching the demise of a nation, burying more by the thousand every day. Then why did I come back? Why was What was the purpose of coming back to this broken place? I am broken, and I am tired. I am sad, but I am angry. I am also a stubborn bitch who will never let them win. So now I need you guys to tell me how to keep on going. Why to keep on going? How do I overcome this regret that is probably the biggest regret of my life? Thank you for everything. Stay safe, Manu. Hey, Manu. Gosh. So Manu's in Brazil. Manu visited America uh, and went to Indiana and spent some time out here. She went back right as the global pandemic thing was really sweeping up. And it was a hard decision for her. She was unsure if that was even a safe decision, but the law being what it was and the circumstances of her life being what they were, she felt like she had to go back to Brazil. Brazil has become a festering hellhole for the pandemic. It is fast becoming one of the worst casualty nations in the world. The process of uh, quarantine and protecting people was completely abandoned there. Um, The president there is very, very powerful and kind of can do whatever he wants. And there's also been a lot of lockdowning. Uh, America said anybody from Brazil is not welcome here anymore. And uh, that's because it's so dangerous and the pandemic is so rife. So whenever your life feels like it's spinning out of control, and whenever you feel trapped and you feel a sense of regret that you've made decisions that ultimately put you in a worse spot than you could have been, feel like you jumped right in front of the train as it was coming, how do you cope with that? How How do you answer that question of how do you keep going on?
2: Well, first of all,
1: you have to stop living in the past.
2: Mm. yeah, the past is a shitty place to live in, yeah right, and I think, as long as you are constantly looking at I should have done this, I should have done that, I shouldn't have done this um okay, yeah, great, you know, what good does that do you like right. we're okay it's it's done now there's there's nothing you can do about it mm-hmm. um. Continuing to dwell on it is not going to make it any easier to cope with. Mm. It's just we have to kind of – we really need to focus on where we are right now, mm-hmm. present moment. Because the other really harmful thing about going back and constantly second-guessing yourself is that you're assuming that you know now what would have worked out better. Mm. And sometimes we can imagine that, and it seems logical. Well, now knowing what I know, I would have done this. Well, but you're still – that's that's only your best guess right now mm. you don't know that it would have worked out any better right mm-hmm. i mean that that's the danger of of constantly looking back and kind of living in the past yeah it's it's never going to be helpful um it's you can't say that you would be in a better situation than you are now maybe but maybe you not maybe we not. we don't know
1: yeah. you don't
2: know you, there's nothing i guess to be scientific about it, there's no good data there.
1: Mm. You know, it's, I remember reading a quote that said something to the effect of to think upon the past is depression, to think upon the future is anxiety, to think upon the now is to be at peace. Right. And I think that there's some truth to that. You Jim know, Jobin. You can, yeah. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, Jim <laughs> Jobin. And so I think that if you if you look at it like that, Manu, yes, I think you're allowed to mourn what happened. I think that you're allowed to mourn the global apocalypse. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you, you had no way of knowing accurately what was going to happen. Um, You had guesses. They were pessimistic. It turns out reality matched your pessimism. That's not usually the case. In this case, it is. And you're kicking yourself because you feel like, well, I called it. I knew it was going to be this bad. I hated, you know, the way my country was going to handle things. I didn't trust my government. And now look at how bad it is. I think you're allowed to mourn that. I think you're allowed to feel that sense of regret and that sense of sadness. But I'll tell you the same thing that we tell people who are recovering from addiction. Looking at the catastrophe of your past does not empower you in the present. You have Mm -hmm. to stay in the now. Just for today, you're safe. Just for today, as John said last week. There's enough food in the pantry. Just for today, your family is safe. And just for today, you're going to be okay. And yeah, you're looking out the window and on the TV, and you're seeing terrific and horrible scenes and and terrible tragedy, and it's hard not to internalize that. It's hard not to attach to that. It's hard not to be affected by that. And I'm not asking you to not be affected by that, but I am asking you to stay in your truth, to stay in the now. And to also be very wary of not looking too much into the future with too much predictive power to tell yourself, it will never this, that, or the other thing. Uh It will always this, that, or the other thing. That's not true. And the last thing I would say to you is, and this is true of anybody out there who's struggling, the one thing I want people to come back to is to remember that you, as a human being, have overcome tremendous things in your story. You have navigated really difficult obstacles, things that at the time you thought were going to overwhelm you, things that you did not feel that you were equipped to surpass when they were happening, and yet you did. Here you are today. And whatever you're facing today, whatever situation is in front of you today, you need to remember who you are. And you need to remember that same person that has overcome amazing obstacles in the past can overcome these obstacles today and that one day in the future you will look back on this and think, my God, that was so hard, that was so terrible, but I endured. If you can endure, the world will change. Change is inevitable. It is happening always around us and through us and among us and if we will just stay where we are and get through it, change will ultimately happen, the world will come back to where it needs to be and your life is going to look better in the future than it does now. Hold on to that. Sometimes it's all we can hold on to. So I watched
2: uh, last
1: night. I watched the movie Jojo Rabbit. Yes. Which uh, in our pre-show
2: um, we discussed that Jim doesn't actually think is a real movie. <laughs> I uh, really hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you've never heard of this movie. Uh, anyway, at the end of the movie, they talk a lot about uh, this German poet. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jacob? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the name though. Okay, because I, I know the name. I cannot pronounce it. It's R-I-L-K-E. Okay. But it's not Rilke or Right. I think it's, it's Ulrike. No, it's a, <laughs> it's German, but okay. I can't remember how to actually pronounce it. But the end the movie, at the very end, they actually have this poem okay. that they were talking about in the movie. And the poem is, it says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No, or I'm sorry. Yeah. Let, I just completely fucked up the entire poem (laughs) uh let everything happen to you beauty and terror just keep going no feeling is final Mm. and i think it was a really powerful way to look at things like we have to in the present moment we have to we can't just take good things right like we have to like part of that mindfulness and just being open and being in the present is experiencing everything Mm. and just accepting everything right it just is. It just is. That's just how it is right now. Mm. And I think how we cope with that is exactly like what you were talking about with kind of what John said last week. Like, do I have something to eat today?
1: Just for today. Yeah.
2: I got some to eat today. Do I have a, a place to live today? Just for Yes, today. I got that. Okay. My basics are covered. Yeah. Everything else is extra. Right. And if we can just kind of take that approach and just say, okay, you know, what, today this is all i need to do i had a client once use this analogy and it was really good he's talking about his recovery mm-hmm. and he was doing amazingly well and i kind of asked him i was like so what's what's kind of your technique what's your approach and he's like I've, i i kind of had this enlightenment where i figured out like the difference between all the stuff i can control and all the things i can't mm. and he he used a fishbowl example he's like i got this fishbowl and it's full of water and all I have to do is just make sure that I don't spill the water. <laughs> that's the and one I just thing hold I it. That's right. that's it. You yeah. know, and everything else that's going around—my boss getting angry and yelling at me, or somebody you know cutting me off on the highway, or all this stuff—it's just these things flying around the room. Right, and they're not hitting me. Right, but they're you happening. know, but they're distracting. Yeah, it's really hard to not focus on them. Right, but if I can just focus on holding this fish bowl and not spilling the water. I'm going to be okay. And so like, that's what he would do every day. Like that's kind of his, his way of centering is
1: to just focus on, okay, well for today, this is all I need to do. Just for today. Right. And that's the thing, Manu, come back to what do I need to do today? And that might be right. That might be weep. That might be mourn. That might be listen to music. That might be read something, but you're going to get through this one day at a time. And you just got to tell yourself the truth. But thanks for writing in, my friend, and we wish you well. We know that that's a really hard place to be in the world. Yeah, I've been watching the news. It's like, wow. It's it's really hard to watch. Things are tough down there. But we're rooting for you. Yeah. Well, here at the end of the show, we uh, do want to thank all of our new TheraPals and TheraPods and TheraProducers and Therodactyls. Quick random note. We won't dive into it, but I'm writing a book, and I've got my proof copy right here. Woo! It's right in front of me. So I've got the final, almost final draft. Uh, I'm changing some things in here. But sticking to my smart goals, guys, when we started this year, we all set goals. Mine was to publish this damn book. I'm almost there. I'm really, really close. So Good for you. Keeping it out there. I'm just reminding people to work on your goals because I'm working on mine, damn it.
2: On that <laughs> note. No one is more
1: surprised than everyone who's listening.
2: <laughs> 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 On that note, I move to bring back book club. Ah, yeah, yeah, just in and, time uh, for my new book. Dad Vice yeah. will be the next one we uh, we tear apart.
1: Well, we want to thank our new Therapal. Thanks, take it to take it EV podcast. Oh, that's cool. So everybody, yeah. go check out take it EV podcast because they gave us a buck. <laughs> Absolutely, that was the cheap, uh, cheapest advertisement you've ever bought. Take it, Evie. I <laughs> 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 want to thank our new, are th- all of our theropods. This is the beginning of the month. You're hearing this in the beginning of June. I want to thank Adam Rabiznik, Andrew Frozen Cusser, Angie Ellis, Brad Kefauver, Carolyn Albert, Chelsea Lamb, Chelsea Saracen, Corey Owens, Craig Little. Curtis Kiwi uh, Fruit, Scoop Hanlon, David Sorensen, Don Door, Elliot H. Lamb, EZ Whip, Ezekiel Lawrence, Felicia Butler, Fred Bashara Jr., Gavin Bristow, Heather Psychotic Scoop Crace, Hylian Scoop, Ian Whitefall, James Cole, Jeffrey Ackerman, Scoopy Scoopy Jess Jess, Jim Hunter, John DeLong, Joseph Pangrazio, Carrie Terhark, a.k.a. Next sister, Katie Chiwilkowski. Chiwilkowski. Nailed it. Kenneth Liu, Kenneth Soto, Lauren Izzo... In the Hizzo, Lori Eltsroth, Linda Brandmeyer, Lindsay Bashara, Matthew Nair, Malaya, Oki Scoop, Richard Bruins, Robert Paulson, Scoopaholic, Scoopiter Ascending, Shernot, Shayla Bullock, Stacey Westerlin, Tess Miller, Three Scoops A Lady, Todd Canfield, and Tracy Replogle, a.k.a. my mom.
2: And thank you to all of our therodactyls. Thank you, Andrea Anderson, Brian Lehman, Dan Martin, David Pollock, Ice Blue Scoop, Kate Keller, Leon Kassab, Mason Miller, Sally Boop Scoop. Scott Brady Tom Morrison and Cindy Ash and we want to welcome back Gray Whitaker welcome back oh
1: yeah he's like somebody stole my seat (laughs) welcome back Gray glad to have you he's so funny he's like somebody stole all the Thera Producer seats but you have to take my money anyway (laughs) we will buddy and we'll put it to use for good mental health stuff but welcome back to the team and we also want to thank our elite eight the mysterious and shrouded Illuminati members of our fan club thank you Smitty Scoop Jake Schneider chairman of the board Robert Brownie Jr. Junior Mint, Kayla Lansbury, Ellie O'Dare, Judy Schneider, Nathan's Hot Dog Scoop, Doctor Ben Dawn, and ex officio board members, Crazy Manana Scoop, and of course, welcome back Gray Whitaker. And if you'd like to hear this episode uncut and
2: unedited, and enjoy our spontaneous projects like Book Club, go to <laughs> Patreon.com/therapy and thank you for supporting mental health. That's all the time we've got for this
1: week's session. We want to thank our landlords, the Ice Cream Social Podcast, and thanks to those of you who contributed to our show today. We really appreciate it. Remember, pod therapy isn't something you should keep all of yourself. Share this episode with someone who needs it by opening this episode's description in your podcast app and copying and pasting that link we provided in your social media. Don't forget, you can find us at facebook.com slash podtherapy, on Twitter at podtherapyguys, and at patreon.com slash therapy. If you want to
2: submit a question to the show, ask anonymously at podtherapy.net or email us at podtherapyguys at gmail.com. I'm Nick Zanchman. Jojo Rabbit. Thanks, and we'll see you for your appointment next week. I can't believe that he believed that was a real movie. <laughs> oh, shit, it's not! <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, <God damn> it! <laughs> I want a whole...
4: 18- plus. next time.